we open the Holy Scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll read together the entire chapter, Word of God, in 1 Peter 2. Wherefore, laying aside all malice, and all guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a lively stone, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree 
that we being dead to sins might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Here we end our reading in the Holy Scriptures. The basis of this chapter and the rest of the scripture, we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 21. Today we are going to look at the first question and answer of this Lord's Day, question and answer 54. What believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? That the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself, by his Spirit and Word, out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to the next article in the Apostolic Creed, I Believe and Holy Catholic Church. And the Apostles' Creed has, to this point, been guiding us through the chief articles of our Christian faith, arranged according to the doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, our creation. The Creed has spent quite a bit of time going through God the Son, our redemption, and the work that Jesus Christ has performed to secure our eternal salvation. And Just recently, we have entered the last section of the Apostles' Creed on God the Holy Spirit, our sanctification. We have seen that the Holy Spirit is sent to apply to us all of the benefits that Christ has earned for us. In Lord's Day 20, we saw that the work of the Spirit is to make us partakers of Christ and all His benefits and to abide with us and comfort us forever. Now, the remaining articles of the Apostles' Creed we can really think about as the effects or the results of the triune God's saving work. I believe in Holy Catholic Church. This Holy Catholic Church is God's masterpiece. His masterpiece of grace. You might say God already has a masterpiece, and indeed He does. This whole creation is His masterpiece. But there's something even more marvelous than God's work of creation, and that's God's work of recreation. His work of taking spiritually dead sinners, giving them new life, conforming them to the image of His Son, renewing them by His Spirit, gathering them together, and forming them into A communion of saints connected to Christ their head. And that's the Holy Catholic Church. It's the masterpiece of God's grace. A people comprised of elect believers who are born again by the Spirit. 
who are gathered into one by the power of the Spirit working through the Word. Believers who are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit who then leads this body of believers into truth and in godliness. The Spirit who creates communion among this body of believers with their head Jesus Christ and with one another. The Spirit who constitutes a new spiritual family. The family of God. The covenant people. Co-heirs of the grace of life. Joint heirs with Christ. A holy Catholic church. God's masterpiece. Intended to glorify Him forever. That's the church. What a beautiful thing the church is. This masterpiece of God's grace answers a deep felt human need, does it not? First of all, it's for God's glory. That's the most important thing, always. But it answers a deep felt human need. God created us like Him. We are relational creatures. We are not meant to be isolated individuals, but to live together with others in communion. And that's what the church is, as the body of Christ, as the covenant community. How often do people say in our day and age that they just want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And people look for that meaning in all sorts of things that ultimately can't supply that meaning. But here is true meaning. Here is true significance for us as God's people. First of all, we belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul. And belonging to Him, partaking of Him, means we are also connected to a body that's bigger than ourselves. The Holy Catholic Church. Of Christ. A community rooted in and based upon the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. A community of faith that is infused with the love of Christ. And ought more and more to manifest that love. A place of real blessing. We all want to belong to a group. The Holy Catholic Church of Christ. So to speak. Is the group. That's going to last forever. The place of friendship. That is eternal. The masterpiece of God's grace. So this morning we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about this church. The doctrine of the church of Christ. And the catechism in question and answer 40 or 54 is going to lead us through it. Our theme is simply the church of Christ. We're first going to look at the church's essence. Then at the church's attributes, and then finally at the church's gathering, how this church is put together. And all of this biblical truth is summarized well in that article of the Creed, I believe in Holy Catholic Church. We are really expounding that article this morning. So we begin with the essence, the essence, meaning what the church really is. What really is the church of Christ? That's a question that's maybe a bit more challenging to answer than meets the eye. One old Reformed theologian reported that Martin Luther once remarked that even a little child can understand what the church is. And yet for a very learned theologian it takes a thousand words to explain what the church really is. There is simplicity yet depth and mystery to this masterpiece of God's grace called the church. 
The church is something familiar, and yet the church is also something altogether different. The church might bear some outward similarities to various groups and other human assemblies in this world, and yet the church is something altogether different and unique. While every institution in this world is indeed the product of God's providence, the church is uniquely the handiwork of God's grace. And no other institution in this world can make that claim. The government, which 1 Peter 2 mentions, is an institution of God established for the important purpose of punishing evildoers, the praise of those who do well, maintaining good order among men, and yet that institution is the product of God's providence. The church is the fruit of His gracious work in Jesus Christ. Something very special the church is. An assembly, a gathering with a very special identity, nature, purpose, and destiny. There's no other gathering or group of people more special than the church of Christ. So what really is it? If you get to the bottom of what the church of Christ is, it's simply this. The gathering of elect believers and their seed. Or to condense it down even more simply, the church is the people of God. That's the essence of the church. The people of God. The church is people. People. A people made up of many different persons whom God sovereignly brings together and joins into one. The essence of the church of Christ is not a hierarchy of religious leaders. The essence of the church is not an elaborate ecclesiastical machinery. The essence of the church is not beautiful buildings and thick doctrinal books. Though those beautiful buildings and doctrinal books are very serviceable to the well-being of the church. Nonetheless, the essence of the church is simply this. The people of God. Because God is a covenant God of relationship within himself as the triune God. And the new community, the spiritual family that he has eternally ordained in his electing decree. And which he has designed to inherit glory. And through which he is pleased to glorify himself in the fellowship and friendship of the covenant. That people reflects who he is. It's a people living in communion. That's the essence of the church people. And you can see this all throughout the Bible. That's the Bible's view of the church. Go back to near the beginning of the Old Testament and you think about how all of God's dealings with mankind have their focus on a people who are going to be redeemed by the promised seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Think of Abraham and the promise God gave to Abraham that God would be his God and the God to his seed after him and that through him all of the families of the earth would be blessed. I will be your God and you shall be my people is the promise that runs through the Bible like a golden thread. You shall be my people. That's the Holy Catholic Church. That's God's masterpiece. That's what he's doing in time and history. He's putting together A people. A people. Go to Mount Sinai. 
in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, where God constitutes Israel as a nation. And God says of Israel that they will be a peculiar treasure to me above all people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. There the Old Testament church is described as a people. Or Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, God says of Israel that he has chosen thee to be a peculiar, that is a special people unto himself. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people. And now all of that Old Testament language is gathered together in a basket, you might say, and set before us here in 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10. Where 1 Peter takes that Old Testament language and applies it to the New Testament church in his day and in our day today. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now because Peter is writing to the New Testament church in her early days, and there have been Gentiles now who have been gathered into this church, which is something Different from the Old Testament, though there were Gentiles gathered into Old Testament Israel, there were not many. By and large, God was pleased to gather his elect in the Old Testament from the nation of Israel. Peter goes on to say in verse 10, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God. That's The church. The people of God. Eternally chosen by the Father. Eternally given to the Son. In the fullness of time redeemed by the Son. In their lifetime gathered by the Spirit and Word. And indwelt by that Spirit. Called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Made by the Spirit partakers of Christ and all of His benefits. Knit together into one body. One communion. United to one head. By one spirit, agreeing in true faith, hope, and love, co-heirs of God's goodly heritage. The people of God. That's the essence of the church. Now to furnish one more layer of biblical proof for this idea, let yourself think of the main figures that the Bible uses to illustrate for us what the church is. It's a spiritual concept that is deep and mysterious. And so, as the Bible often does with other things, so the Bible does with the church. It gives us an earthly picture. We find one of those earthly pictures in 1 Peter chapter 2. The church is the temple, the house of God. Verses 5 and 6. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and Jesus Christ. Every member of the church is like a stone, a brick, placed into the structure of a building and together all of those stones make up a building. The church is not a, a physical building. The church is a people and persons. Elected believers are the living stones that make up that spiritual house in which God dwells and in which He is worshipped, praised, and glorified. 
the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1. It's the most well-known illustration for the church of Christ. The body of Christ. A body made up of all different parts who though different are nonetheless one, have the same life, are governed by the same head, pursue the same goals, share a common destiny. That's the church. A people made up of many persons. Or the bride of Christ. Spoken about in Ephesians 5 or Revelations 19, this emphasizes Christ's love for His people. He gives Himself for them that He might have and hold them forevermore in the embrace of His covenant. The essence of the church is that it is a people. and Not just any people. It's not another group. It's not another nation. It's the people of God. The family of God. A couple of brief applications to apply the essence of the church. The church, in its essence, is God's people. The gathering of elect believers and their children. What does that mean for us? It means in the first place, beloved, be a people. Be a people. Now what does that mean? Don't be hermits. Don't be isolationists. Don't be a person that isolates yourself from others, doesn't care about the lives of others, isn't interested in interacting with others in the church, but be a people. We are saved by God and connected to Christ our head, but when we are connected to Christ, we must also be and we are connected to those others who are connected to Christ. That we might partake of Him and His benefits together. And partaking of the benefits of Christ means that we have a shared life. That we are to live together. Be a people. Intentionally seek and establish, cultivate, cherish relationships in the church of Christ. In your local congregation. Let us have an interest in one another. And a love for one another that pursues one another. And delights to be with one another. That doesn't mean that we erase our personal lives. We have no time for ourselves. Not at all. We remain individuals. We remain individual families. But we're part of something bigger than that. The people of God. Let us be a people. And that's a good reason to come to worship. We're a people. And there's something uniquely special When we gather together as a people. And when all the persons who make up that people are there. 1 Peter 2 speaks of us as lively stones that God sculpts and gives each its own place. And when each stone is there occupying his or own place, the the building is finished. And the building functions the way it's supposed to be. What happens if 25% of the stones or the bricks are missing from a building? You've got a problem and the building isn't going to work right. It's not going to serve the function that it's supposed to serve to the best that it can. Likewise, the church, 
God has gathered us together to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people to do what? To show forth His praises. And we do that in a special way when we gather for worship together. And it's significant when the whole body is together, worshiping together, communing together. You might think, I'm a nobody. I'm not missed if I'm not there, but that's not true. One member missing from the body, and the body is incomplete. And so let this be a positive encouragement to us to be zealous about corporate worship. Coming to church isn't about meeting some legalistic requirement or keeping up appearances. We mustn't make it that. But coming to church to worship is being who we've been saved to be. The people of God who come together to worship our God. And that's something special. That's something to want to be a part of. One more application. If the essence of the church is that the church is the people of God, that means the church in her work, the church in her ministry, and now we think about the church institute, her offices, the official work that she does, as well as the life of the church. The church ought to prioritize people. The essence of the church is not an elaborate ecclesiastical machinery. Though the church must have ecclesiastical machinery, must have good order and decency, and those are gifts, those must be cherished, those must be maintained, that's not the essence of the church. The church is not, in essence, an elaborate ecclesiastical hierarchy. The church does not exist for the sake of the offices, or for the honor, or for the reputation of men, though the offices are necessary. And though the work of the offices are so very necessary because they're tools God uses to tend to and care for His people. His people. Prioritize His people. Yes, our chief goal is the glory of God. That's thing number one. That's most important. But God is glorified when we love our neighbor as ourselves. God is glorified by His church. When His people are cared for. When His people are nurtured in faith, hope, and love. When His lambs are protected. Jesus asked Simon Peter on the seashore, Simon Peter, do you love me? Peter, as an apostle, as minister of the word, as one charged to carry out the official work of the church said I love you what was Jesus instruction indicating how that love was to be shown feed my sheep Jesus there uses a word that means shepherd my sheep it implies bring the word that's at the heart of it because the word is the spiritual food of the believer but bring that word not only in preaching but bring that word to bear on all of life so that by that word the sheep are protected nurtured cared for provided for built up in faith the church ought to prioritize people and so let us all in whatever place we occupy in the church office bearers members Think about that. The church is God's people. And so, my purpose here in the body 
is to serve and to build up and to do good to the other people in the church of God. Everything should serve that. Why is the maintenance of doctrine and good order so important? Well, it glorifies God, and it glorifies God by doing good for the people of God. When the word is brought truly and with clarity, that feeds God's people. Love the church. What does it really mean to love the church? It means more than loving the idea of the church. It means more than loving the institution of the church. It means much more than loving a certain denominational manifestation of the church. Loving the church of God means loving God's people. People. Prioritize people. That honors God. And that lives out the doctrine of the church because the church in her essence is God's people. Well, God's people have characteristics just as each and every one of us have personal characteristics. As individuals, we have attributes. So too, the church, this people that God puts together, this masterpiece of His grace. We turn now to look at the attributes of the church. And those attributes, those characteristics of God's people are set before us in the Apostles' Creed. In the article we're considering, I believe an holy Catholic church. And those adjectives that are stacked upon each other are the attributes of the church, the characteristics of the church, which reveal to us what the church is like, what kind of people this people of God is. And these attributes that the church possesses, she possesses not of herself, not by nature. They're not attributes that are found in her members by nature, but they are attributes which are the fruit of God's grace. The church is the masterpiece of God's grace. And the gracious work of God in the hearts and lives of her members and in the church as a whole is what brings these attributes into being. God's grace causes them to blossom and to bloom in the church. So let's walk through these three attributes that the Apostles' Creed sets forth. And the first of the attributes of the church is the unity of the church or the oneness of the church. And that's expressed in the indefinite article an. An holy Catholic church. It means one. An, not many. There is a unity to God's people. And the unity of the church has really two dimensions to it. In the first place, it means there is only one church. One people. And then in the second place, it means that that one people is unified. The members of the one people of God are one with each other. Let's go through those two dimensions of the unity of the church. Beginning with the first. And... Holy Catholic Church. There is only one church of God. And the biblical figures bear this out. In the Old Testament, how many temples were there? One. How many bodies does the head Jesus Christ have? One. Jesus gave his life. To redeem and bring to himself not several brides, but one bride. There is one church. 
Jesus said in John 10 verse 16 that he must gather other sheep, referring to the Gentiles. He was speaking there to the Israelites. And then he he says this, that there be one fold and one shepherd. One, only one church. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 bears this out. Ye are a chosen generation. The church is not many chosen generations, but one. A royal priesthood. An holy nation. A peculiar people. An holy Catholic church. One. Not many. Christ has one church. One people. Period. This is an article of faith. We confess this. We believe this. Because the Bible teaches it. Even though sometimes it doesn't seem to fit with our daily experience. Because after all, we look around the ecclesiastical landscape and we see so many different denominations. And we say, how can we confess an holy Catholic church when there are all of these churches with different denominational names? That points out to us the fact that the unity of the church, the oneness of the church is above all things a spiritual reality that is not always apparent to our eyes. The unity of the church, what makes there be only one church is the fact that there is only one head, Jesus Christ. And the members of that one church are all elect believers. All those who are united to him by a spirit-authored true faith. And those true believers, those elect, are scattered throughout all sorts of different churches with different denominational labels upon them. Visibly, the church's oneness is not always apparent. On account of sin, on account of the limitedness of our human understanding, on account of the reality of error and heresy and sin, the visible unity of the church, we can't always see it. Because there is division. There is disagreement. And on this side of glory, some of that division and disagreement will persist and must persist. Because the truth must not be allowed to perish. And certain errors that are serious, that compromise the gospel, must be rejected. But we see... That even when there are such disagreements, and even when organizational unity is not possible among different denominations and congregations, nevertheless the true spiritual unity of the church is not fractured or destroyed. All who are elect believers, true believers in Jesus Christ, belong to the one church. Membership in the one church. It's not a matter of a label that you bear. It's a matter of what the Holy Spirit has done inside of your heart. Uniting you to Christ. Making you a partaker of Him by a true and living faith. And so, to apply this, this means we must be very careful. Not simply to assume that certain denominational names mean the only true church. That's not the case. Belonging to the church of Christ is much more than having a certain name. Much, much more. 
Belonging to the true church of Christ consists in belonging to Christ. And so we must be very careful in the way we judge others or what we assume about them because of their denominational affiliation. Pride so easily comes in here. Careful. The church of Christ, the one church of Christ, the one universal church of Christ, is so much bigger than we are. But on the other hand, we must be careful not to slip into the other ditch and think, well, then we should just have a free-for-all. Doctrine doesn't matter. We don't have to be careful about the maintenance of true doctrine. We shouldn't worry about any of these things. Let's just pursue visible unity above all things. No. God's word is very clear. We must be faithful to His word. And that means we seek to be a part of a a local congregation and a denomination that we believe teaches that word faithfully. That's where we're to have our membership. But the proper, the proper path is the one that's in the middle and avoids both extremes. The extreme of disregarding doctrinal distinctives entirely and the extreme of thinking that because I belong to the church that I believe teaches the doctrine of the word of God most faithfully that we are the only true church. Both are unbiblical extremes, and the proper path is in the middle. Holding firmly to our doctrinal heritage and maintaining it over against error, and yet recognizing that God's sovereign grace works in so many hearts, and that we confess an holy Catholic church that is so much bigger than we are. And there are so many others, even those that we might disagree with on important things. Nonetheless, true faith in our God's people, we can recognize that and say, brother, sister. Even as we discuss the important things that divide us. So let us be balanced. And this article of the Apostles' Creed, based on the Word of God, helps us maintain that biblical balance. The Church of Christ is one church. Made up of all elect believers the world over. So that's that's the first dimension of the oneness of the church of Christ. Only one church, one church throughout time and history. But now the second dimension of the oneness of the church is that those members who compose the one church are united with each other. There is a spiritual kinship created by God's sovereign grace that runs deeper than blood. And you experience that. You've experienced that if you've ever run into a fellow Christian from a different country or from a different culture who you're so different from, and yet there is that commonality of faith. There is that instant connection because you're both connected to Jesus Christ and you share far more in common than what separates you. There is a kinship, not of blood, but of a common connection to Jesus Christ. Fellow partakers of Christ in all His benefits are so very closely connected. You belong to one people. The people of God. And so Romans 12 verse 5 says, So we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. 
Jesus is my head. Jesus is your head. Jesus is the head of the believer sitting next to you. Jesus is the head of the believer sitting in another sanctuary across the world this morning. There is the oneness that unites us. And that unity comes to expression in faith. As the catechism points out. Agreeing in one faith. The knowledge of Christ. Who he is. What he has done. Trust in Christ. And so to apply this. We are to live out our unity. One with another. How do we do that? So many ways. But let's just apply it to. An unfortunate reality of human life. As we're all sinners. Because we're all sinners. We have conflicts. We get into disagreements. We get into fights. We get divided from one another. And the truth of an holy Catholic church is a powerful antidote to our strife. Think about what unites true Christians. What unites elect believers. We have the spirit of Christ. We are together partakers of Christ in all of his benefits. We belong to his body, to his bride. We are lively stones sculpted by God, fit together into one spiritual house. And we could go on and on. Now, If you and I would bear that in mind when we're bickering with someone. It would make that disagreement or that thing we're bickering over shrink to a minuscule size in comparison to what we have in common in Jesus Christ. Bring to bear the unity of the church of Christ upon your relationships in the body of Christ. And how powerful and applicable this truth is. Second attribute of the church that the catechism highlights is the holiness of the church. I believe an holy Catholic church. We understand what holiness is. Holiness is to be set apart from sin and impurity. Consecrated to God. Devoted to his glory. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says the church is a holy nation. And the church is a peculiar people, a special people, and part of the specialness of that people is she is a people consecrated and devoted to God. The church is holy. And this holiness of the church is no more of her own making than her unity is. Fallen sinful people like we are, aren't going to be united of our own strength or of our own accord. Man by nature is a divider. And man by nature is unholy. But the holiness of the church is due to her head. It flows from her head. Just as the unity of the church comes from her head. The church as a whole is holy unto the Lord. And the members of the church are holy unto the Lord. And that holiness has its origin in the holy head Jesus Christ. And in his holy spirit Who indwells the church and indwells the members. The Holy Spirit who is the holy making spirit. The sanctifier. When we talk about the holiness of the church. Here too we can identify two senses in which the church is holy. In the first place she's holy by the imputation of the righteousness of her head. Justification. Her head, Jesus Christ, paid the price for her sins. Her head, Jesus Christ, merited everlasting righteousness for her. And Christ, 
washes his church in his own blood, cleanses her from her guilt, adorns her in the wedding garment of his righteousness, and she is holy in him. And that's the reason we can be confident as a people to approach God, to worship Him, to fellowship with Him. We will be accepted, not because we are so good, not because we've done things to make ourselves holy, but because Christ our head is holy. And His holiness, like a beautiful robe, covers us. We are righteous, holy in Him by His imputed righteousness. But now on the basis of that imputed righteousness, the Holy Spirit gets to work in the church. gets to work in the members of the church, sanctifying us, cutting sin out of our lives, and working in us His renewing grace so that the fruits of the Spirit blossom in your life and in my life. And when those fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all of the rest, when they blossom in the lives of individual members, the holiness, the beauty of the church is manifest. Holiness, just like unity, is an article of faith. We confess and believe in holy Catholic Church. And just like we often don't see the visible outward unity of the church, often we don't see the holiness of the church either. Because every person constituting the people of God is a sinful person. Everyone but the head, Jesus Christ, the perfect one. There is sin in the church. Sometimes there's lots of sin in the church. Sometimes the church looks polluted by sin. And that's where we have to go back to the Word of God and look at the church the way Jesus looks at the church. For example, in Ephesians 5, 26, verse 5 verses 26 and 27, Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Jesus so loves his church that he gave his life for the church. And his blood covers the sins of her members. And his spirit is working in the church to sanctify and sanctify. And sanctify until at last on the day of Christ the whole church is presented without spot or wrinkle. Right now, there are spots and wrinkles. So how do we react to sin in the church? Again, the balanced middle way avoiding the two unbiblical extremes. One unbiblical extreme is to despair, to resign ourselves to evil in the church, and do nothing. That's not what we must do. When there is sin in the church, it must be addressed. Addressed with the word of God. Righteousness ought to be sought, and where there is resistance to righteousness, there should be a proper godly pushing for righteousness. We are to do justice. Love mercy, walk humbly with our God, and seek that it be done. We are to labor to bring growth and holiness where there is failure. We must not say, well, there's always going to be sin in the church, so let's not do anything about it. That will get taken care of on the day of Christ. 
No, the whole Bible says the Christian life is a life of growth and holiness which we are to pursue and the church ought to pursue it too. But the other unbiblical extreme is to despise the church, revile the church, despise God's people because of the sin in their lives. The biblical way is to see the church the way Christ sees the church. And with patience and understanding and charity in our judgment towards fellow members of the church, labor for growth of holiness, always remembering that it's much easier to see the motes of unholiness in his or her eyes than the beam of unholiness in my own eye. How good it is for us to remember church is made up of sinners. And I'm one of them. Then I'll walk humbly with my God. And love mercy with my fellow sinners. Even as we seek to do justly. So let us strive for holiness. That's what God's people should do. We should delight in holiness. Seek it. Depend upon the Spirit for it. Love the church. Part of the way we love the church is seek the holiness of the church. And not despise her or reject her when we see her faults, which at times are very, very pronounced. Lastly, by way of attributes, the Apostles' Creed points out the Catholicity of the church. Catholic is a word that simply means throughout the whole. The one church of Christ is a universal church that spans the globe. That spans time and history. That's the idea of Catholic. Christ has one people. But he gathers this one people, as the catechism says, from the foundation of the world, from the beginning of the world, all the way to the end. There's not several different churches, different bodies, different brides throughout time and history, but one, one people. A Catholic people gathered from all time in history. And a people gathered from all the nations of the world. It spans the globe. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. So that the Catholic church is spread over the whole world. It crosses all geographical, national, racial boundaries. As Jesus said in Acts 1 verse 8 to his disciples, Ye shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And every local congregation is a part of that universal Catholic church, a manifestation of that church. Just like a a local congregation is a body, and each and every one of us are a part of the local church, the body called First PRC of Holland, so too every local congregation is like a part of the body that is called Catholic Church. So that this congregation and innumerable congregations throughout the world are all like parts of the body united to the head, Jesus Christ. That the church is Catholic means the church is a people in which all of the natural differences, distinctions, and divisions among human beings fade into the background and are no longer Sources of division and conflict, or ought not to be. The Catholicity of the church transcends what 
is different among us. Galatians 3.26 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ. There is this glorious diversity within the unity of the church of Christ. One body. One church. And yet the members are so beautifully different and distinct and diverse. And yet one. Glorious diversity within glorious unity. It's a masterpiece of God's grace. God made it that way. The church is not supposed to be one-dimensional. The church should not be a monoculture, but should express beautifully the Catholicity of the church. So that means human distinctions, earthly differences, should not be dividing points among God's people. Believers are equal in God's eyes. Children of His. Equal in worth. Equal in value. Equal in dignity. Co-heirs of grace. One people. Whether you're male. Whether you're female. Gender doesn't give you an advantage with God. Whether you're rich or poor. Whatever your social status is. It means nothing in God's eyes. God doesn't have a respect unto a rich person. And despise the poor. Those earthly differences that can cause strain and divide us here below, are transcended in the church. Bond or free, we are one in Christ. And if that's a spiritual reality, then the church is called to live that out. We confess the Catholicity of the church, let us also live it. In a very practical way is that Christians don't have an air of superiority over one another. Because of their earthly position. Or any such thing. But we're brothers. We're sisters in Christ. Male or female. Rich or poor. Whatever race, nationality, tribe or tongue. We hail from. One in Christ. What a masterpiece that God's church is. Well, now to finish up briefly the gathering of the church. The church is God's people, but the members of the church, his elect, are not born naturally as God's people. By nature, we are born dead in sin, as Ephesians 2 verse says. The members of the church must be gathered, as 1 Peter 2 says, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's why the catechism says about this church that she is put together in this way. The Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, preserves to himself by his spirit and word out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life. The fruit of that operation of the Spirit by the Word as He puts together the members of the church, constitutes them as a people so that they agree in true faith and are resolved from the heart, I am and forever shall remain a living member of this people. This is my people. God gathers His church by the Word. Thus the importance the gospel preaching, thus the importance of mission work, thus the importance of all of our witnessing. God uses the means of the word 
to take his living stones out of the quarry of this world and mold them and fit them into place. To gather the sheep out of the darkness and bring them into one fold. To bring his people home. To put a member in the local body of Christ to supply that congregation with gifts that serves the upbuilding of the body. Nothing's more beautiful than the gathering of the church. And that's the work of the ascended Lord right now. That's what the New Testament age is about. Building and putting together this masterpiece of grace. There's nothing better to be a part of. Nothing better to be a member of. The Church of Christ. Let's make the last line of answer 54. Our heartfelt confession. I am. By grace I am and I forever shall remain. A living member. Of the people of God. Amen. We thank thee Father for thy word. Bless it to our hearts. As we have explored a few of the deep truths surrounding thy church. We pray that it may edify us. Stir up in us a love for the church, a love for thy people, a desire to be a part of thy church and to remain a part of thy church and to serve thy church, to build up thy church and forever remain a living member thereof. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.